is to give you an overview of each of the books of the Bible from 30,000 feet. Now, as you have grown accustomed to my style of uh, expositional preaching, which I believe is really the, the preferable and really the, I don't know, probably a stronger word than preferable, it really is the, the method of preaching, I think, that best honors the idea of verbal plenary inspiration, that every word comes from God, so we go verse by verse, we don't skip over anything. But one of the dangers is that sometimes we can, as I indicated some weeks ago, we can miss the forest for the trees. And so what we want to do is try to give you a a snapshot, at least, of each of the books of the Bible so that you can get the big picture of the Bible's overarching storyline. And so uh, some weeks ago, we did Genesis from 30,000 feet. And now we want to tackle the book of Exodus from 30,000 feet. So I trust that this will be an encouraging time. Of course, the the difficulty with a message like this is that there's no possible way that we can touch on everything in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's hard to do this book justice in just a single sermon. So you may find that as we go through this that there are things that you're aware of in the book of Exodus that you wish that we covered at more length or even that you wish that we even addressed. But uh, I trust that this will at least give us a big picture overview of this book to uh, keep in our minds as we're, of course, doing the more in-depth verse-by-verse preaching on Sunday mornings. Exodus chapter 15 is where we want to start as we begin looking at this book. You might think that this is an unusual place to start, but I think as we get into this, you'll understand why we're starting here as uh, we begin this exploration of the book of Exodus. So Exodus chapter 15, we'll begin with verse number 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank into the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And in the greatness of thine excellency, thou hast overthrown them that rose up against thee. Thou sentest forth thy wrath, which consumed them as stubble. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as in heap. And the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? Fearful in praises, doing wonders. 
Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed, the mighty men of Moab. Trembling shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord, till thy people pass over, which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. In the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horse of chariot, or for the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word this morning, or this evening. We praise you that you are indeed Jehovah God, that you are the great I Am. You are the God who is ever present with your people. Father, we pray that in these moments, as we consider the book of Exodus, that we would be drawn to worship. Lord, we know that that's really the end goal of your work in this world, that you are seeking men and women to worship you, as we're told in John 4. And we pray that we would be those that worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now many of you probably recognize those words as part of a poem written by Emma Lazarus that is engraved on a plaque inside the Statue of Liberty. And those are words that promise freedom. They resonate with us, not only as Americans, but as humans made in the image of God. I uncovered this quote some time ago from the theologian Wayne Grudem. He said, when human beings are deprived of their ability to make free choices by evil governments or by other circumstances, a significant part of their God-likeness is suppressed. It is not surprising that they will pay almost any price to regain their freedom. We remember the words of Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Now, the word exodus means exit, and specifically referring here in this book to Israel's exit from slavery in Egypt. And that's probably why this book has resonated with so many down through the centuries. We think, for example, of the black Americans that were enslaved before the Civil War. And many of the spirituals that came out of that environment were based on the book of Exodus. Oh, when Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my people go. Go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Now indeed, we do have a story about freedom in the book of Exodus. 
But more importantly, first and foremost, Exodus is a story that tells us about God. Now I know, that sounds very fundamental. But it's a book that tells us who God is and what he has done in the world, his character and his works. It's notable that as you read through Exodus, one of the things that, that really I found to be a recurring theme is a little phrase, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. You find that actually 18 times in the book of Exodus. It's just this constant refrain, I am the Lord, or I am Jehovah, the I am, the self-sufficient covenant God of Israel, the one who is ever present with his people. In the words of the apologist Francis Schaeffer, he is the God who is there. That's the God that is revealed to us in this book. Now, it was vital for the original readers of this book to understand who God is. For 400 years, the people of Israel had been strangers in the land of Egypt. And you have to bear in mind, of course, that this was a culture that failed to recognize Jehovah. This was a culture that was given over to the worship of many gods. Now, we are not explicitly told this in the book of Exodus, but I think it would be a fair deduction to assume that probably many, if not most, of the people of Israel, by the time we come to this book, were caught up in idolatry. They were not surrounded by a culture that was sympathetic to the view that there was only one true and living God. And we have to imagine that, however it played itself out, this culture was having a deleterious effect on the people of God. And so it was vital as God was bringing his people out of slavery and as they were preparing to enter the promised land, it was vital that his people understand who he is. Now, we discover in this book that, that God, of course, he exercises his great power on the land of Egypt. He sends plagues. He does mighty signs and wonders. All of this with the intent that his people would live lives of devotion to him. Really, in the book of Exodus, you have two major ideas that both start with the letter D, so they're very easy to remember. Deliverance and devotion. In fact, the way we could express it rather succinctly is we could say deliverance that leads to devotion. That order, by the way, is important, as we will see. But let me give you a few passages that demonstrate this for us. This is in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12. This is as uh, Moses is having the encounter with God at the burning bush. God says to Moses, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, there's deliverance, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. There's devotion. Think about the pronouncements that Moses gave to Pharaoh. For example, Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee. Three days' journey into the desert. There's deliverance. And sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Devotion. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, deliverance, that they may serve me in the wilderness. There's devotion. 
And Pharaoh, finally, in Exodus chapter 12, as he responds to Moses after he's been through all the ten plagues and he's finally had enough of all of this. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, this is what Pharaoh says to Moses. Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel. There's deliverance. And go serve the Lord as ye have said. There's devotion. You see this all throughout the book. There's an act of deliverance that leads or should lead the people to devotion. And that, friends, is the underlying message of this book. God delivers his people from bondage so that they will demonstrate lives of devotion to him. So, these two themes, deliverance and devotion, they divide the book of Exodus quite neatly. Chapters 1 through 18 deal with the deliverance of God's people. And chapters 19 through 40 deal with the devotion of God's people. So, let's take these one by one. First, the deliverance of God's people. And what we find in chapters 1 through 18 is that five questions are answered for us about the deliverance of God's people. And we'll try to run through these fairly quickly. First of all, what are God's people delivered from? What are God's people delivered from? If you go back to chapter 1, Notice how the book of Exodus begins in verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. Of course, in the subsequent verses, you have the listing of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, in verse 1, you notice in our English Bibles, it begins with the word now. The, word, the Hebrew word that is translated now is the Hebrew word that is normally translated and it's rather interesting that the book begins this way, and what it demonstrates is that the book of Exodus is really a continuation of the narrative that began in Genesis. So really, it's one continuous story. We end the book of Genesis with Jacob and his sons in Egypt. Of course, Jacob eventually passes away, and eventually Joseph passes away at the end of the book. But we find this family in Egypt at the end of Genesis. And now Exodus is going to continue to tell us what became of this family now that they are in Egypt. Well, initially we find signs of great blessing. Notice verse 7. And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding, exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. Now you can compare this language to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. You find that this is the same type of language that is used before the fall when God blesses mankind. Fruitfulness, multiplication, a sign of God's blessing. So thus far, things sound very encouraging, do they not? But, notice verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And the subsequent narrative reveals that this new pharaoh that comes to power sees the nation of Israel as a threat. And so we're told in verse 11 that therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. They're forced into slavery. We're told that they build for Pharaoh treasure cities. Ultimately, the Pharaoh even goes to such lengths that he recognizes 
how God is blessing these people. He wants to destroy them. And ultimately, he orders all the Hebrew midwives to kill any of the baby boys that are born. Now, of course, probably you know, the midwives fear God. They refuse to do that. And so Pharaoh actually orders his own people when they find these Hebrew baby boys to cast them into the river. Things do not look particularly encouraging for God's people at this point. And we make way for the second question, whom did God use to deliver his people? And we find that it's someone that we probably would not expect. Of course, that's so often the case about men that we read in the scriptures that God used. But in Exodus chapter 2, we read of a very ordinary couple from the house of Levi. They have a child. And we're told in verse 2 that he was a goodly child. Interesting, the Hebrew here, it actually says the child was good. Same word that's used in Genesis 1 of creation. Just as God saw the creation that it was good. So this young mother, she looked at her child and she saw that he was good. And she did all in her power to try to protect him. Of course, after three months, that proved to be impossible and so she makes a step of faith in a very unusual way. She does exactly what a man of faith did generations before, and she constructs an ark. And she puts the little baby Moses in that ark that she makes from papyrus reeds and sends him down the river. Well, things don't look particularly encouraging because the one who grabs that ark and looks at that baby is none other than Pharaoh's daughter. But again, in a strange twist of providence, that daughter looks at that baby with compassion. And thanks to the ingenuity of that baby's older sister Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter hires the baby's biological mother to be his nurse. What a remarkable turn of events. This child, he grows up in the household of Pharaoh. But we get some indication in the text that he begins to come to grips with who he really is by birth. He's a Hebrew. He belongs to God's chosen people. Now, it seems from the text of Hebrews that he understands somewhat who this God is, though his knowledge is quite limited. We, we find in Exodus chapter 3 that he even has to ask God what his name is. But nonetheless, he seems to have some perception that he belongs to an important people, a people that is chosen by God. And so he finds one of his fellow Egyptians who is tormenting and afflicting one of his Jewish brothers. Moses looks both ways. He sees no one is watching, and so he actually murders that Egyptian. Now, he has the assumption, we find actually, when we learn this from the book of Acts, there is this hope in Moses' heart that this act might actually lead to him being able to deliver his people out of slavery in Egypt. But of course it was not so. We find that his own people are rejecting him. They've gotten word of this murder and they're responding to him in a rather skeptical tone. And Pharaoh has threatened to kill him. And so Moses, 
Incidentally, I don't know that I mentioned this, but his name is, refers to the fact that he was drawn out of the water. Names often have significance like that in Scripture. But here's Moses, son of Pharaoh's daughter, may very well have been destined to be the next king over Egypt. And yet now he's a fugitive. He's running from the law, and he makes his way to the Arabian desert in the land of Midian, where he marries a Midianite girl, and he becomes a shepherd to his father-in-law's sheep. Boy, talk about going from hero to zero in a hurry. Forty years Moses would lead this life. And from all intents and purposes, it appears that his life is pretty much going nowhere. I mean, he's escaped the danger to his life in Egypt, but it seems that he's just going to be a blip on the radar screen of human history, not accomplishing much of anything. Well, all of a sudden, one day, Moses, as he's leading his sheep, he comes to a bush. And the bush is burning, but he notices that the bush is not consumed. This catches Moses' attention, and so he goes to examine the bush a little bit more closely. And as he does so, he finds that a voice from the bush is calling his name. Moses, Moses. Moses is instructed to take off his sandals because he is on holy ground. By the way, the word holy appears 70 times in the book of Exodus. It's a strong emphasis of this book that the God that Israel is to worship is a holy God. He is set apart. He is transcendent from all the idols of this world. And Moses receives a commission. God tells him, you're going to go back to Egypt and you are going to deliver the people from their bondage. Or really, to put it more specifically, God will do that and God will use Moses as the instrument. Now again, this seems like a very unlikely candidate to be used by God. And you look through Exodus 3 and 4 and you find that Moses is repeatedly objecting to being the man that God would use for this task. But God assures Moses that he will be with him. He assures him of his presence. God assures Moses that he's going to do signs and wonders through the hand of Moses. Even the rod, the simple rod that Moses is carrying in his hand, would be used as a tool to display God's wonders in the land of Egypt. And despite all Moses' protests, of course, God continues to intervene and to compel Moses to do this task. And of course, we have learned eventually God does become quite furious with Moses because of all these objections, and he is assured that his brother Aaron would be his spokesman as they went into the land of Egypt. Well, we find Moses and Aaron, they, of course, meet up. They eventually meet with the elders of Israel. The elders of Israel believe the words, and, of course, they ride off into the sunset. They bring Israel out of bondage. Boy, if it were just that simple, right? Of course, we go to the next question that is answered in this section of Exodus. 
And that's this, how does God judge the oppressors of his people? And he doesn't do so in a way that's simple. Really, it's a, it's a complicated process, and we find that there are many barriers. In fact, initially, as Moses comes to Pharaoh, it seems like there's not going to be any success at all. Things get worse, not better. As Moses comes and says, let my people go, Pharaoh actually says, okay, well, you guys, you're idle. You're not doing the work you're supposed to do because you're talking about going in the wilderness and sacrificing to your God. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make you make the same amount of bricks that you made before, but we're not going to give you the straw to make them anymore. And, of course, the children of Israel were none too pleased with that. Things don't look particularly encouraging, but there's a reason that God does it this way. And it's a reason that is indicated repeatedly in the book of Exodus. Let me give you a few examples here. Chapter 3 and verse 20. It's interesting as you read that account in chapter 3, God assures Moses from the beginning that Pharaoh's not going to let you guys go. You're going to encounter resistance. But there's a purpose for this in verse 20. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in the midst thereof. The purpose is even clearer in verse 7 of chapter 6. And I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God which bringeth you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. All these things demonstrate who God is. He is the covenant God of Israel. Chapter 7, verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. All these things that God does, they prove to Israel that he is the true God and they prove to the Egyptians that he's the true God. That's the underlying purpose for why God does it this way. He does all of this for his own glory, just as he does all that he does in the world. He wanted the Egyptians and the people of Israel to see that he is Jehovah. He is the I Am. He is the one who alone has all power and all might. And so God sends ten plagues on the land of Egypt. The turning of the Nile into blood. The frogs. The gnats. Flies. Death of livestock. Boils. Hail. Locusts. Darkness. And finally, the death of the firstborn. And there's a pattern with these plagues. Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. God sends a plague. Pharaoh promises that he will let the people go if God relents from the plague. But then Pharaoh's heart is hardened so that he still refuses to let the people go. You see it over and over and over again. We are told, incidentally, in chapter 12 and verse 12, that these plagues that God sends are actually against all the gods in Egypt. In fact, many interpreters believe that when you look at those ten plagues, that each of them is actually targeted against a specific deity that was worshipped in the land of Egypt. But we know, regardless of how we slice it, that every one of these plagues was an act of the true and living God. These were not things that could ever be devised by a human army. You notice that with Israel's deliverance out of Egypt, how much of their deliverance do they actually accomplish? None. 
There's no military might involved here. There's no insurrection taking place. Even Moses is just really a tool in the hand of God. He's a spokesman for God. He's a prophet for God. But it is God alone that does the wonders that enable the people to depart from the land of Egypt. So this is how God delivers his people from oppression. Or rather, how he judges the oppressors of his people. Now we have to ask, how does God deliver his people? Of course, those ten plagues, they climax in chapter 12 with the death of the firstborn. And it is in that chapter that we are introduced to a feast that would be memorialized in the land of Israel throughout all their generations. The feast of the Passover. God would come through the land of Egypt. He would destroy all the firstborn. And so he gives the people of Israel specific instructions if they are to avoid this fate in their own households. That they are to each, each household is to sacrifice a lamb. And they would take the blood of that lamb and they would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And as God came through the land of Egypt, when he saw the blood, he would pass over that house. Judgment would not come upon that household because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. Incidentally, it's no surprise that 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ is our Passover lamb. That as his blood is applied to us, as we put our faith in him, that God can pass over us and we will avoid the judgment of God. I wonder if your trust is in Christ as our Passover this evening. But here in the book of Exodus, this is pivotal for these people that God would use this to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And so finally, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh realizes we can't keep going on with this. So in the verse we just read, he says, okay, you go, just leave. And as the children of Israel go, God blesses them greatly. The people of Egypt, probably in great fear, they're giving the people of Israel all their jewelry, all their various accoutrements, similar to what happened to Abraham when he left Egypt in Genesis chapter 12. They're going out as a blessed people. But of course, as they go out, we find that Pharaoh does another about face. And as the children of Israel, as they come to the Red Sea, all of a sudden they see Pharaoh's chariots coming. And what we see is an event that will be duplicated numbers of times in Israel's history. The people start to speak against Moses. Well, you know, Moses, didn't we tell you? We just wanted to wanted you to leave us alone so that we could continue serving in Egypt. Well, Moses encourages the people to just to stand still, to see that God is indeed going to deliver them. And so Moses takes his rod and he uses that and as he stretches forth his rod, God parts the Red Sea so that the people can walk on dry land. And to make matters even better, 
as the Egyptian armies come and as they begin to chase after the Israelites, God again closes the waters of the Red Sea, drowning all of Pharaoh's host. That leads, of course, to the song that we read at the beginning of the message in Exodus chapter 15. Again, no military might on the part of Israel demonstrated here. This is all an act of God himself. Incidentally, an act toward a people that thus far has not demonstrated very much gratefulness for the things that he's done. Now this leads us to a fifth question that is answered here, and that's how does God test his people? You know, whenever God saves, he tests. We've seen that in 1 Peter, haven't we? God redeems a people for himself, but then he puts that people through the fires of testing. And in these next several chapters, we find examples of God's testing of the people. And unfortunately, they don't pass any of the tests. It begins at the end of chapter 15. Israel comes to Marah. The waters are bitter. And so what do the people do? They respond as they will many times in the books of Exodus and Numbers. They murmur. They complain against Moses. Moses throws a tree into those waters. They become sweet and the people of Israel are able to partake. Again in chapter 16, they come to the wilderness of sin. We see more testing as the people complain because of their inability to find food. And this is when God institutes that great provision of manna, bread from heaven, that would become the staple of their diet for the next 40 years. In chapter 17, they come to Rephidim. Once again, they're unable to find water, and so Moses strikes a rock and brings forth water to provide for the needs of the people. This is also, of course, where there is this battle that takes place with Amalek and his people that Israel is victorious. But throughout this section, God tests Israel, and Israel fails the test every time. Isn't that pretty remarkable? This is the same people. They saw all the plagues. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw God's faithfulness time and time again, and yet, every time there's a challenge, the people murmur. They fail to believe. I wonder how often we murmur and complain despite God's goodness to us. So that ends the first section here in Exodus, the deliverance of God's people. And now we want to move to the devotion of God's people. The devotion of God's people in chapters 19 through 40. And this section really centers on a covenant that God makes with his people. Now, back in Genesis, we saw that God made a covenant with Abraham and with his descendants called the Abrahamic Covenant. That covenant is what we call an unconditional covenant because God alone was responsible for the fulfillment of the covenant terms, the land, the seed, the blessing. This covenant that God makes in Exodus is a different type of covenant. It is a conditional covenant. Another way to put it, it's bilateral. There are agreements on both sides, both parties in the covenant. And the agreement is if the people will obey, 
God will bring to the people certain blessings. But if they disobey, there will be cursing. And of course that really comes to the forefront when you get to Deuteronomy and you see at chapters 27 and 28 those blessings and cursings that are listed out. And so there are obligations that are placed upon the people of Israel in this covenant arrangement. Chapter 19, you see the preparation for the covenant. As God comes on Mount Sinai with thunderings, lightnings in this cloud of thick darkness. There's a tremendous intimidation here. There's tremendous distance. Moses is the only one permitted to go up to the mount directly into the presence of God. And it's a theme that you see all throughout the Old Testament, that there is this tremendous distance between unholy man and holy God. And it starts here in Exodus 19. Then we see the preamble for the covenant in chapter 20. Now notice how this covenant is introduced. Exodus 20 in verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And these words introduce the next several chapters which will give us the requirements of the covenant. Now we can't miss the order of this. You have the promise or the reference back to God's salvation of the people in verses 1 and 2 and then thereafter you have the law. That order is important. We are saved to serve. We are delivered for devotion. And if you get that order mixed up, you run into all kinds of problems. That is, of course, what most of the world's religions are based on, work salvation. That we do these works of devotion in order to be delivered. But the Christian religion teaches that we are delivered in order to do the good works. Through the work of Christ. It's finished on the cross. But we see that even in Exodus. The deliverance comes and then there are obligations that are placed upon the people. And so we see the requirements of the covenant. Now most of what you read in chapters 20 through 23 are examples of what we call case laws. If-then statements. If you will do this, then this will happen. There would be a crime listed and then a punishment associated with that specific crime. But all of these case laws are really governed by what we find in verses 3 through 17. This famous passage that we call the Decalogue or more famously the Ten Commandments. Now the Ten Commandments have been summarized into two categories often called the two tables of the law. The first table dealing with our relationship with God. The second table dealing with relationships between other people. This first table, you see how these commands all really build on one another. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And of course, God tolerates no competitors to his worship. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. These efforts to try to construe the divine nature through a statue or through some image. All of those efforts end up falling short because there's no image that can capture the beauty of God's holiness, the glory of his character. So such is forbidden for the people of Israel. The third command, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Of course, that prohibits any blasphemy. But I would suggest that that command is really far more far-ranging than that. 
that the idea is that we don't never use God's name in a way that is flippant, in a way that is careless. It is a name that is worthy of the utmost reverence that we can give. Fourth command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's really, it's interesting as you read through Exodus, you find that this is emphasized more than once. There is a holy place where God meets with his people, the tabernacle, but there is also a holy time where God meets with his people, the Sabbath day. And there's this day set aside even through the design and creation where the people of Israel are to cease from their normal activities and to give themselves to their God, to reflecting on his goodness and work. Now, we are not under a Sabbath law strictly in the New Testament, but there is one day in the New Testament economy that is called in Revelation 1, the Lord's Day. Same language used for the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. A day designated for the Lord, and that is, of course, this day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That there is to be a day that we set aside to worship our Lord, and we get out of the nor normal rhythms of our work and recreation to give ourselves to his worship. That's the first table of the law, but there's also those laws pertaining to our relationships with others. Commandment five, honor thy father and thy mother. And yes, again, strictly speaking, applying to our relationship with our parents, but also by extension, we can include grandparents. We can even include things like loyalty to country. Because all of that factors into this honor that is due the previous generations. Honor thy father and thy mother. Commandment six, thou shalt not kill. A prohibition against murder. And Jesus extends that and indicates that even the hatred or the unjustified anger in our hearts is really murder in our hearts. Commandment 7, thou shalt not commit adultery. And here again, Jesus ups the ante. Even if you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Commandment 8, thou shalt not steal. Really, adultery is the worst form of stealing, the most blatant form, but then the command is even broader. Any types of theft taking things that don't belong to us. Commandment 9, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. All of these commandments, incidentally, these are things that hurt our neighbor. Bearing false witness has the potential of harming our neighbor. And then commandment 10, really a catch-all that encompasses all these others and really is at the root of all of these others, thou shalt not covet. Any sin involved against our neighbor is ultimately rooted in a desire to have something that is not rightfully ours. And so these commands, they undergird all these other case laws that you find in Exodus 20 through 23. Well, once you have a covenant, you have to have a ratification of the covenant, and that's what you find in chapter 24. Notice, if you go to chapter 24 and verse 3, and Moses came and told all the people, or told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. And after this, sacrifices are prepared. 
The blood of those sacrifices is sprinkled on the people, indicating that they are being set apart as a holy priesthood for God, who are now obligated to keep the words of this covenant. One of the things that might be the most frustrating for readers of the Bible is this extensive section that you have in chapters 25 to 31, giving very intricate details about how the tabernacle is to be constructed. Now we know, especially from the book of Hebrews, that the tabernacle is really an earthly pattern of something, or really an earthly shadow of something that is present in heaven. The blueprints given for the tabernacle are not given willy-nilly, but they are given because this is a picture of the place where God is worshipped in heaven itself. And so all those details are vitally important because this is where God would meet with his people. Incidentally, the tabernacle, very important because this was a portable unit of worship. This could be taken down and it could be transported to the next place that Israel would go on their wilderness journeys. But in each of these places, it was where God would meet with his people, especially through the Ark of the Covenant, as we discussed this morning, that mercy seat there, which really represented God's throne on earth. Sacrifices would be presented at that tabernacle to atone for the people's sins. Now with all of this, we have a very rude interruption that takes place in chapter 32 with the breaking of the covenant. And boy, if you were going to break the covenant, I mean this was a really blatant and royally just in your face method of breaking the covenant. Of course, Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, and the people are growing ever impatient with the fact that Moses has not yet come down. And so they come to Aaron. They say, hey, you know, what, what's going on with this guy Moses? So Aaron says, well, I have an idea. You all bring me the earrings from your ears. And they do so, and he takes them, he melts them all down, and he uses them to fashion a golden calf. The calf or the bull, very common image in pagan worship throughout that time period. And they raise up this golden calf and they say, These be thy gods, O Israel, which delivered thee out of the land of Egypt. What, what a blatant lie. The first three commands are immediately broken with this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Think of it. Saying that this golden calf delivered the people from Egypt. How more blatantly could you take God's name in vain than that? And of course, even in the second table of the law, you have commands broken as the people are singing and dancing and engaging in sexual immorality. God informs Moses of this. And God says to Moses, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to wipe these people out. We'll start all over again with you. Moses, we're told elsewhere in the books of Moses, that he's the meekest man on the earth. And despite all that has happened, and despite the fact that these people continue to murmur against him, Moses' heart is toward his people. And he intercedes. And he begs God to uphold.
uphold his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as Moses comes down from that mountain, he's furious at what he sees. And we are told that he breaks those tables of the law, those golden tablets, or those stone tablets that the finger of God himself had written on. Now, some might say that Moses just lost his temper, but really this is righteous indignation here. And what this signifies is that the people have broken their covenant with God. Moses does something interesting. He grinds that golden calf to powder. He puts it in the water supply and he forces the people to drink it. That's an interesting parallel when you compare this with Numbers chapter 5. That if a husband believed that his wife was unfaithful, she could be put to an adultery test where some of the dust from the tabernacle would be put in her water and if her belly began to swell and her thighs rot, then it would be evidence that she was guilty of adultery. Well, God's people here are guilty of radical spiritual adultery through this incident with the golden calf. We find that there's a real struggle that takes place. Moses, again, he, there's this extermination that takes place with the Levites coming up saying that they're on the Lord's side and there are many that are still continuing in this sin and so they are purged. But again, Moses is interceding for the people. He even says, you know, if you're not going to forgive their sins, just blot me out of your book. Presumably the book of the living that he was willing to die in the place of his people. And God, he relents in the judgment, but he says, go into the land of Canaan, but I'm not going to go with you. Well, the people are grieved by this, and Moses is grieved by this, and Moses continues to persist. He cries out to God, and he says, God, show me your glory. Moses is not going to give up. He basically says, God, if you're not going to go with us into the promised land, it's better for us not to go at all. And Moses is able to see something that no human being before or since has seen. He sees the glory of the Lord. What the text describes for us is that God shows Moses his back parts. Now, we, we don't quite know exactly what that means because we know that all of these types of descriptions that are given of God throughout the scriptures of God's face, his fingers, his back, and so forth, that all of these are what we call anthropomorphisms. God is a spirit. He does not have a body like we do. But Moses is apparently enabled to see something that just a brief glimpse of God's glory as he's hidden behind the cleft of a rock and God briefly uncovers his eyes this brief glimpse of the glory of God radiates from the face of Moses such that when he sees the children of Israel and they look at him, they're nearly blinded by the glory of God radiating from his face. And so Moses actually has to cover his face with a veil. But Moses' intercession for the people is ultimately successful. The book of Exodus, the last several chapters enumerate for us how Israel constructed the tabernacle in obedience to God's instructions. Listen to how the book of Exodus ends. If you go over to chapter 40 and verse 34, 
Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God would be present with his people. Despite their sin, despite their repeated murmurings against Moses, despite their unbelief, God promised that he would be present with his people again. And of course, Moses, he receives those tables of the law again. The people again are bound to God in this covenant. Now, I think at this point, it's appropriate for us to make application for us as New Testament Christians. The Exodus was the most significant event in the Old Testament. What you find is that all the subsequent books of the Old Testament, they're always referring back to this event. The prophets, the Psalms, they're always reflecting back on the fact that God delivered his people out of Egypt because it was that event that constituted the people of God. It was through that that they became this treasured possession for God, this holy priesthood of a nation. Now, if we look over in Luke, we quickly turn over to Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. We see how there's a parallel here between the Old and the New Testament. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. And it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. The description here of the transfiguration. But there's an, a specific detail that Luke mentions that is not mentioned by the other gospel writers. Notice verse 31. Who appeared in glory. Okay, this is Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The word decease, the Greek word there is the word exodus. Literally, they spoke about the exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. Just as Israel's exodus out of Egypt is the central event of the Old Testament, Jesus' exodus of his people through his death on the cross, is the central event of the New Testament. And it is, of course, in the New Testament, they're always bringing us back to that, aren't they? Paul, Peter, John, the writers in the New Testament, they're bringing us back to the fact that we've been brought out of the slavery of sin. That terminology of redemption. Jesus died as a ransom to deliver us from sin and death. Now let me draw your attention to one other text. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. 
For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, notice how this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is described in verse 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. There's deliverance. And that terminology of redemption. And purify unto himself a peculiar people, or a people for God's own possession, zealous of good works. That's devotion. Deliverance that leads to devotion. We see it with Israel in the Old Testament, and we see it with the church in the New. So, two questions. Have you been delivered from your sins through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And question two. If you have, are you living a life of devotion to your blessed Lord? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Heavenly Father, we praise you for Christ, for the exodus that he accomplished for us on Calvary's cross. Father, we come before you as those who were previously enslaved to sin and death. We thank you that Calvary covers it all, that we've been set free if we belong to Christ. Lord, give us grace now to be zealous of good works, to live in obedience, Lord, in areas of life maybe that even that the world might consider small and insignificant, but Lord, that we would demonstrate faithfulness in those areas that we would be devoted to you. Please forgive us, Lord. We know that we give you so much less than our soul, our life, our all. Lord, how shameful that is. How weak are the efforts that we make at serving you. You deserve our very best, and yet we pat ourselves on the back for even giving you a couple hours a week through church services. Lord, you deserve so much more. May, whether we eat or drink, may we do it for the glory of God. And it's in Christ's name we pray.